Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2023, we're running our annual Radiothon, where we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy the podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Sean Norris, who is the author of Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global, which comes out through Verso Books on June 6th. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Thank you for having me. What I really liked about this book is the way that in the mainstream coverage of the abortion debate, and I'm putting scare quotes around everything that I'm saying here, it's often depicted as being this battle between pro-choice, which is the idea that women should have some control over their bodies, and pro-life, which is just the very simple idea that life begins at conception, and so these people just want to protect these little babies. I think your book really unpacks the way that that's not actually what's going on. It's, there's quite a bit of complexity happening on the pro-life side. Could you speak a little bit about how you sort of conceive of that side of the, the debate? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, first of all, I think it's important to say that I don't, wouldn't use myself and I don't agree with the term pro-life because we know that when abortion bans come in, women die. We know this because there's around 20,000 deaths related to unsafe abortion every year. We know that in Ireland in 2012, Savita Halapa lost her life when she was refused abortion care. And we know that in Poland, since the tightened ban in January last year, at least three women have died as a result of not being able to access reproductive health care. So the term pro-life is is a misnomer. These people are not pro-life. If they were, they'd support women to have access to safe and legal abortion because we know that saves women's lives and saves wanted children's lives as well. But I think what is really interesting is, as you say, a lot of this debate has often been focused on a binary idea. You're you're you, you believe that life begins at conception, maybe this is rooted in a religious belief, maybe it's rooted in a sort of form of religious morality, or you believe that women have a right over their own body. What I was really interested in when I started looking at this was how there was a much greater complexity around far-right and fascistic ideology influencing the anti-abortion movement. A lot of this comes down to far-right conspiracy theories which see feminism in league with migration, pro-migration policy, shadowy liberal elites, the metropolitan elite, all these bogeymen that we hear the far right talking about, working to repress the white birth rate through abortion rights and through access to abortion and contraception in order to create what they call a white genocide. And I think as soon as you start to see abortion as linked to male supremacy and particularly white male supremacy or a form of nationalism, including Christian nationalism in the United States, you start to understand that there's something much deeper going on about thinking about 
abortion and reproductive rights and women's place in society as being about reproductive vessels that women are configured as wombs of the nation. And so it's less about babies or pro-life or making sure everyone has babies. It's more about control and about creating a sort of creating a pushback against what they perceive to be white genocide. I was really struck by the way in which satanic plots came into this. Mm. Uh, It seemed that a not just a, a, a metaphorical battle of good versus evil was going on in the minds of the people that were pushing anti-abortion politics, but that they believed that there was a, a literal satanic plot that they were fighting against. So the satanic plot aspect of my book came as a result of going undercover in an anti-abortion training academy. I was expecting the usual, again, I'm using scare quotes, pro-life rhetoric, the idea that that women have a duty to have a baby, like these really familiar tropes that we we associate with the anti-abortion movement. Instead, I was subject to a lecture about how abortion is a form of satanic ritual abuse and that abortions help fuel Satan's power and that Satan is in league with, again, that scare, scary word, the metropolitan elites and the feminists and the fascist dog whistle of cultural Marxists in order to repress Christianity in the global north. I mean, as you can imagine, when I was in this meeting, my eyes were popping out of my skull. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I remember being like, well, I've got my story now. I can I can safely leave. But this was in 2019. And I think now we are actually scarily much more familiar with these tropes because of the QAnon conspiracy theory. So the QAnon conspiracy theory took hold in the late 2010s and then really came to the forefront in the 2020 presidential election in the US. And this theory... I mean, it's completely baseless. I mean, when you say it, you think like, how can I even be saying these things out loud? But this is what they believe, that there's a shadowy cabal, like democratic elite, sort of metropolitan pro-EU Hollywood elite who traffic children in tunnels underground in order to harvest something called adrenochrome, which they think will give them eternal youth. And that the adrenochrome has to be harvested from these children in satanic ceremonies because that makes it more potent. I mean, completely crazy, like completely wild, this conspiracy theory. And yet increasing numbers of Americans, including US lawmakers, seem to be willing to either repeat it or believe it. Or even Trump himself said that the QAnons liked him in the run up to the election. So this very strange linking of abortion rights and any progressive politics with Satanism has sort of come almost out of nowhere at this point in time and yet has has got a grip on people who are willing to believe the most wild and out there and ludicrous conspiracy theories in order to have a standpoint against women's reproductive rights and women's reproductive health and that's really frightening what was also interesting about the satanic conspiracy theory is that it links with sort of anti-immigration conspiracy theories So one of the people who was at the training academy that I infiltrated later made a video where he talked about sort of migration from the global south into the global north coming from predominantly Muslim countries was all part of this satanic plot to de-Christianize the West. And again, this is really linked to great replacement, far right, male white supremacist conspiracy theory. So you can start to see these links between these sort of different ugly theories, ugly plots about women and women's rights. And yeah, it's quite scary. It's quite scary. And I think 
it's very easy to dismiss these conspiracy theories because they are so surreal and they are so strange and there's no basis in reality. But when you sort of start to look at, again, the number of Congress people standing in last year's elections who were parroting this stuff, the number, there's some interesting polling on the number of Americans who believe at least part of the QAnon conspiracy theory. It, it becomes something we need to pay attention to. I'd rather we didn't, but we do need to. All these things sound very unnatural. Can you address how, I guess, campaigns against reproductive rights and obsessions over great replacements, how do they feed into ideas, fascist ideas about natural orders? So the start of my book tries to centre things in what is the ideology underpinning far-right attitudes to abortion. And I look at these ideas within fascist ideology that go back to sort of 1920s fascism through to sort of 1930s and 1940s Nazism and beyond. And one of the really disturbing slash interesting aspects of fascist ideology is this notion that there is a natural order and that progress, social progress, human rights, rationality, science, recognising that women's equality, women's liberation have all knocked off the natural order, that these things are harming a natural order which places men and white men at the top. So in this sort of fascistic natural order, women are subservient to men, white people are superior to black people and global majority people, and LGBTQ plus people just don't exist. They don't have a part in in this order. And the sort of fascist argument is that we need to roll back progress. We need to roll back history and all of the positives that we have made in terms of thinking about civil rights, LGBT rights, women's rights, in order to restore this natural order. And some of the organisations, the anti-abortion organisations that I track in the book, are so blatant about this. They even call their manifesto restoring the natural order. You know, it's not like they are hiding that they believe this. I think one of the really clear examples that we've seen of this in recent times is in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So Putin's sort of top guru, as it were, the the man known as Putin's Rasputin, Alexander Dugin, is very, very hot on the natural order. And he talks quite openly about wanting to reverse modernity and take Russia and, and the rest of the world back into this imagined past where there was a natural order of male supremacy and white male supremacy at that So it's really interesting because when you start to think about these issues, the natural order for women is one where women are pinned to reproduction. A woman's role in the natural order is to be a wife, is to be a mother, and is to continue to have white babies for the white race, as it were. And a man's role is is to be a warrior, a fighter, a patriarchal authority. And these are dangerous stereotypes for both men and women. Men shouldn't be pinned to this violent authoritarian stereotype of a figure, just as women shouldn't be pinned to reproduction. And so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey understanding these pillars of fascist thinking, and then particularly, as I say, seeing it play out in in the sort of invasion of Ukraine, but also in the ways in which anti-abortion organisations, including mainstream ones, continue to talk about women's and men's roles in society. Um, in the book, you lay out the pipeline by which we, we see these fascist ideas being constructed and then distributed through political parties and through these well-funded organisations. Could you speak a little bit about what you see at the start of that pipeline? Where are these ideas being constructed? So I got really into the pipeline metaphor when I was writing the book. That's Um, all right. We love a pipeline. 
It just seems like a really good way of thinking about how ideas are transmitted. And what I discovered is that you sort of have these, again, these fascistic notions about men and women's roles in society, about the Great Replacement, about satanic conspiracies, really rooted in very ugly far-right places, far-right groups and networks, particularly online. So I spend a lot of time lurking around far-right Telegram and on incel forums and red pill forums to see what anti-women, anti-abortion, far-right and fascist people are saying about women's rights. And it was all very clear. Abortion is fueling the Great Replacement, that abortion is fueling a white genocide in the global north, that women need to like rediscover their role in society. There was a great quote on an incel forum that the perfect society is one where every man is guaranteed a wife. I looked at a lot of trad wife tradition, seeing about how the sort of idealized woman in the far right mind is one who is passive, is one who, I mean, has spends a lot of time outdoors on the homestead, who raises her children and is knowledgeable about her European roots. That was one of the quotes in a meme I saw. And so you had this constant buildup that women's rights were harming, harming the West, harming the global North. They were creating insecure men who didn't know their place in society. And the way to get back to a good sort of traditional, natural order of things is to reverse women's rights, to pin women to reproduction and to have the patriarchal authority restored. I mean, I would argue that patriarchal authority has never gone, but that's because they, I disagree with these people. And from there, what we see is absolutely, if this was all just happening on incel forums and in far-right telegram, we could all sleep easy at night. There's no, nothing to worry about. This is just extremists having extremist beliefs, which has always happened. What becomes concerning is we then see sort of more mainstream organizations taking the same tropes, taking the same ideas about men and women's roles, arguing that there's a natural order that women's rights and women's liberation has toppled and that needs to be restored. And these organizations go and give speeches at the UN. They they have multinational petitions that garner thousands of signatures. They get funding from wealthy foundations in the US and in Europe. There's obviously funding coming from Russia, which is very difficult to track, but we know it's there. And from there, once you're sort of in, in the UN, once you're having meetings with government, once you're talking to the politicians who make decisions, these really nasty tropes about women's rights, about replacement, great replacement theory, about the rights of migrant people are suddenly becoming government policy. And I give a few examples in the book. One of the really concerning quotes that I include right near the beginning is from a former US congressman who literally is talking about abortion aiding the a replacement. He mentions about how many children are being lost in the US every year due to abortion and how many people from, scare quotes, other cultures are invading the US. And this isn't some crazy, some far-right extremist on a Telegram page. This is someone who was in Congress for nearly 20 years. The big example in Europe is Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, who actually, again, has spoken about replacement in his speeches. He's spoken about the fact that immigration is not a solution to declining populations or to what they call the demographic winter. And other politicians have also taken on that lead of talking about the need to make our own insert nationality here, to think about immigration as something that is replacing the so-called indigenous population. And so I think it's, I think, as I say, if if I'd written this book and it was just lots of examples of scary people saying scary things in scary forums, it, it wouldn't, it, it would be interesting, arguably, but 
we wouldn't have to worry. But what we're seeing is that these tropes and these ideologies have infiltrated mainstream politics. And then now the very same rhetoric is being voiced with by those who have a lot of power about women's bodies and power to change the rules and the laws that protect women's rights. Well, folks, every day 3CR broadcasts news and views that you won't hear anywhere on commercial airwaves. And unlike some of the groups we're talking about today, we don't have access to great swathes of dark money to keep the lights on. Instead, we rely on the support of our wonderful community. That is you. Throughout the month of June, 3CR is raising money to keep Radical Radio alive. So head to givenow.com.au and search for Yeah Na Passera to donate. All right, let's go back to our interview with Sean Norris about the book Bodies Under Siege. Sean, one of the ways in which some of these ideas appear to have become more mainstream seems to be the, a consequence of the ways in which the language of rights has been adopted by some of these political actors. Can you talk about how the language of rights has been repurposed to suit political extremists and the far right? It's a really interesting tactic. And one of the organisations that I spend quite a long time looking at in the book is called Agenda Europe. And they wrote the, a manifesto in the sort of mid-2010s, not only detailing their aims, which, as you can expect, anti-abortion aims, anti-LGBT aims, anti-divorce, anti-contraception. They also detail how you achieve the aims. And one of the key strategies that they promote is this using the language of the opposition against them, which is, as you say, co-opting rights language in order to roll back human rights. I mean, it's clever. So they talk about that you should talk, talk about how ab- abortion harms women and anti-abortion measures are about protecting women and supporting women. A lot of organisations talk about the fact that being pro-life is being pro-human rights because you're giving women the choice to have the child that, sh- you know, to And I absolutely believe, as someone who promotes reproductive justice, that reproductive justice is about making sure every woman, every family can have the child she wants to have and not have the child she doesn't want to have. What these organisations do is miss out that second half. So it's very much using a language about parental rights. That comes up a lot. So that your your rights as a parent, father's rights, this idea that men should be able to have a say in whether their partner or ex-partner has an abortion. It's really promoted as like it is a father's right fathers have rights too. There's a lot of stuff, again, about using the word choice, using words about language about health, using language, obviously, about life. And it's very effective. If you look at some of the sort of petition documents or petition texts from anti-abortion movements, you wouldn't necessarily know on first reading that they're anti-abortion because they're talking about women's human rights. And as for me, a woman's human right is the right over her body for bodily autonomy, bodily integrity, and the right to have an abortion. But they're talking about it in a very different way. And it is canny. It's a canny tactic. These ideas are not getting from Telegram to the UN just on their own. There's often millions or sometimes even billions of dollars at play. Could you speak a little bit about the the groups that are are funding these efforts? So, I feel very lucky that when I was writing this book, an amazing researcher called Neil Data was doing some research on the funding streams for anti-gender movements, which meant that a lot of the sort of legwork of going through tax returns and documents had been done for me thanks to his incredible and agenda-setting report called The Tip of the Iceberg. I would recommend anyone who is interested in this issue to go and find that report. It's completely 
eye-opening and we're really lucky to have researchers like Neil Datta doing this. And what his report found and what my own book research backed up and continued to find was that we have three pots of money fueling anti-gender movements in Europe particularly, but also this has an impact around the world. A lot of the organisations in Europe are also organising in other parts of the world. The biggest pot in Europe is perhaps unsurprisingly from Europe itself. And what we see here is a lot of aristocratic European old money, old nobility, who set up these foundations in order to fund causes that they're interested in, including anti-gender, anti-abortion causes. We also see money just coming from very wealthy Catholic organisations, very wealthy businessmen who have an interest in anti-gender organising. And so a lot of money comes from Europe itself. The next big pot of money is unsurprisingly from the US. So the United States is probably one of the wealthiest spaces for anti-gender organising. And what we see is particularly foundations linked to very hard right Republican sort of characters. So Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, she has a family foundation that has invested in anti-abortion causes and anti-LGBT organisations. Her parents are very another foundation that is doing this work. There's also a lot of money swimming around from what we call disaster capitalists. So sort of people or very, very wealthy businessmen, very wealthy billionaires in the US who are funding libertarian causes more generally. So and anti-climate or climate denialist causes, funding the Republican Party, funding hard right candidates in the Republican Party. They're giving a lot of money to anti-abortion causes. And then the final pot of money we see is from Russia and the Russian Federation. Again, it's, it's all the sort of similar kinds of people, very wealthy oligarchs, people who've made billions out of the chaos of the last sort of 30, 40 years and who have very strong, like, are using their money to sow chaos. And I think this is a really interesting aspect of the Russian money. It's very much about trying to fund causes that cause upset, cause disruptions, make, create a, a sort of this side versus that side on various issues in order to sort of sow instability around Europe. And we know that this is a tactic. We, we've, we've known this for a long time, um, whether it's about Brexit, whether it's about the Trump presidency or whether it's about abortion rights and gender rights more generally. There's a desire to fund areas that create disagreement and create division where there wasn't division before. Um, the group Citizen Go is one that you cover in the book. They've recently announced their intention to set up shop in Australia. What sort of thing can we expect when they begin operating? So Citizen Go is a very interesting organisation. They were set up in Spain in 20, I want to say 2013. I think it was early, early 2010s anyway, in order to kind of be the sort of right wing anti-gender version of the petition websites we're more familiar with, like Avaz or 38 Degrees or Change.org. So their, their model is to have anti-gender petitions that cover everything from protesting against abortion legislation, a petition to overall Roe, to really bizarre things like having a trans person in a Pantene advert, so the shampoo advert, or Disney having a gay character in a new film. I mean, it covers the whole gamut. And what they do is they tend to pick what are emotive subjects per country. So what we have at the moment with Citizen Go in the UK is a lot of stuff around drag, a lot of stuff around trans rights, 
LGBT inclusive education. This is because in the UK, abortion is not really that much of a contested issue. We've had a few really good wins on abortion rights in the UK over the past couple of years. But this sort of anti-LGBT, anti-drag, anti-trans narrative has really amped up lately. And Citizen Go can see that as a way of getting a kind of a, a shoe in. They can have some influence as a result. I went to Kenya last year to report specifically on what Citizen Go was doing there. So in Kenya, abortion is much more contested. There's this narrative that abortion rights and LGBT rights are a kind of neo-colonialist imposition on traditional Kenyan and traditional African values. So Citizen Go is really pushing that message in Kenya that anyone who's pro-abortion is kind of a Western stooge and to be a true kind of good African person, good Kenyan person, you should be anti-abortion. Completely ignores, of course, the fact that Citizen Go is a Spanish organisation imposing its agenda on Kenya and thereby is a neo-colonialist organisation. Smite like massive frustration with them. So I guess in Australia, what you're going to see is probably quite similar to in the UK. There's this sort of similar rouse about LGBT rights, drag shows, LGBT inclusive education. And I imagine that they'll kind of grab hold of those emotive issues that are causing division already and pushing their petitions onto that. But I think Citizen Go is a really dangerous organization. They're one of the ones, as I say, that really pushes that kind of rights message in their petition text. Parental rights, children are being indoctrinated and parents can't do anything to protect them. These kind of really emotive sort of ideas. And and I think they sort of present themselves as they're, they're funded by small donations from their members, but they're also very connected to the global anti-rights movement. Their board it features Brian Brown from the World Congress of Families and the National Organization for Marriage, a hugely influential American figure in the anti-gender movement. They also had, until recently, for obvious reasons, a Russian individual on their board who, you know, is obviously now not on the board because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So again, they were they were linked to these kind of characters, these global characters who we know were very influential in pushing anti-gender narratives in Europe, in, in America, and around the world. Sean, in terms of the response by women to these ideas and these movements, there's obviously a lot of organisation taking place to defend reproductive rights and so on. However, you do refer to, in the book, some women who have embraced the notion of becoming tradwives. Can you explain to the listener what a tradwife is and why it might appeal to some women? So I think writing the section on tradwives was, I think it's one of my favourite sections of the book in a kind of weird way, but because it was, it was so interesting to think about from someone from my perspective, who's been a feminist my whole life, who's spent my whole adult life fighting for women's rights and campaigning for reproductive rights, to try and put myself in the space of what would it mean if I didn't believe this? What would it mean to not believe in women's rights or to believe that women's rights were harming women? Like, so I had to kind of, it was an interesting section to write, to put myself in that position and think through their ideology. So a trad wife is a sort of subculture within the far right, where women, they live a traditional lifestyle and they want to be a wife. It's, a, it's all there in the name. And they, they get married to a, a fellow sort of far right man and they don't work. They, they live a traditional housewife lifestyle and their role is to be submissive and subordinate to their husband and to the men in the movement. Now, there's a kind of really interesting 
start, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in that space. I mean, one of the reasons that trad wives are really valuable to the far right is that the far right is a very male movement that wants to destroy women's rights. So how do you attract women to a movement that wants to take your rights away, but that ultimately needs you because they need you to have become their sort of womb of the nation and, and have lots of babies? So they sort of sell feminism as having harmed women. They argue that feminism has made women really exhausted, that women can't have the children they want to have because they're putting their careers first, that feminism has created a generation of kind of weak and effeminate men. I mean, again, scare quotes, and that it's destroyed women's happiness and that and it's made women miserable. And by contrast, by becoming a trad wife, you're going to be this adored white goddess. You're going to have a husband that worships you, that does everything for you. You're not going to have to work. You don't have to get Feel, you don't have to engage with like complicated issues such as politics or feminism or what's going on in the world. You literally just get to be the sort of the body, the woman's body that is revered by the movement that you're in. Of course, this is complete nonsense. Like, if you are reduced to a body, that's all you are. You're 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 the sort of reproductive vessel. You're, you don't have humanity anymore. You're, you're just seen as this body that can be used and ultimately abused by your husband. There's a lot of stuff in trad wife culture that really normalizes domestic abuse and reproductive coercion. There are forum posts where women are advising their fellow trad wives on what, what kind of discipline they can accept. And it, it goes from everything from spanking, which is basically being slapped, to being made to stand in a corner with your face in a wall or to write write lines like you're you're like in detention at school and your husband is making you write lines about how to be a better woman and how to be a better wife and so i think like any woman of my generation or you know, we we are we do have a hard time like life is hard we have to work we we want to raise a family we want to have a partner we've there's a lot of political stuff going on we have to there's a lot of this idea that feminism, I mean, this was never what feminism was about, but this idea that feminism would let you have it all and what it's left us is doing it all. You can see the temptation of someone going like, just chill, just like sit down, put your feet up and you're going to be adored. You're going to, you're going to be treated special just by virtue of your womanhood. But it's a trick because you're not being treated in any special way. You're at risk of abuse. You lose all of your economic and, and social security and independence. And and the sort of trad wife lifestyle entrenches gender inequality. It says that women are lesser than men and that men have the ultimate authority over the women in their lives. And it, we know that's dangerous. That's why we have the women's liberation movement. And that's why we had feminism to get away from the dangers of that inequality and what that da- inequality does to women. You also examine another cohort of women who have gotten themselves entangled with these anti-woman organisations, and it seems like they perhaps have a little less of an excuse that these are people that perhaps shouldn't be so easily tricked. The radical feminists, could you speak a little bit about why someone who describes themselves as a radical feminist would get into bed, so to speak, with these groups which hate women. So obviously one of the sort of big rows that's been going on over the past, I mean, I guess decade now, if not half a decade, has been over trans rights and the related issue of self-identification. And there has been, this kind of in the UK started around when the Conservative Party said that it wanted to review the legislation about 
switching gender, so transitioning and the, and the related rights of trans people. They wanted the, the proposal was to make it easier to transition through promoting self-ID. This policy has now been scrapped. And there was a response from some radical feminists that there were potential pitfalls of self-identification. And these are pitfalls that we have seen in the UK. For example, there was a recent case when a rapist was housed in a women's prison when it's like, and that caused a lot of concern and questioning about the safety of the women in that prison. So, but then from there, it's kind of become a, this this horrible, ugly sort of debate, if for want of a better word, that has led to a sort of rise in transphobic feeling, rise in, in transphobia across across the board, really. And one of the aspects of that has been this sort of decision from some women who call themselves radical feminists to align with anti-gender organisations, including those who are anti-abortion. I think it's really important to recognise that a lot of radical feminists, I mean, and I'm speaking from my the UK perspective, which is my context, a lot of radical feminists in the UK who have been critical of self-ID have been very clear that they do not want to work with far-right organisations and that their arguments against self-ID are not the same as those coming from sort of anti-gender, anti-abortion organisations. But that hasn't stopped the fact that some other feminists or women who call themselves feminists have done exactly that. And so what we're seeing is this very surreal situation where organisations who would claim that they're in favour of women's rights, sharing platforms with anti-abortionists, sharing platforms with those who believe that lesbians don't exist or shouldn't have any legal right to exist. Organisations that wrote the legal arguments that led to the overruling of Roe versus Wade in America, or who are working in, in Kenya where women's rights are quite contested or abortion rights particularly contested in order to make sure that young teenage girls can't get an abortion and are therefore doing self-managed abortion, which can cause them severe damage, if not death. It's absolutely surreal. It was it's a surreal thing to see the 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 willingness of some women to stand up with those who in a second would take their rights away in order to attack trans rights. And I think it's something we need to take really seriously. And one of the reasons I say that many radical feminists in the UK have, have been very firm that their opposition to self-ID is not the same as the, the sort of far-right opposition is because the, 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 the row and the debate has become so toxic and so horrible that we need to be really clear that the far right, we need to be clear what the far right opposition to trans rights is in order to defeat it and in order to protect trans people. And so, yeah, it's been a very, it's a very weird time. And I think any woman who calls herself a feminist and yet is willing to share a platform with those that by the stroke of a pen wiped out the human rights of millions of women in the, in the US cannot call herself a feminist. You just can't. You can't say that you're willing to compromise on the safety of women and LGBTQ plus people for, for what political gain? It's, 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 it's not acceptable. I guess if you look at someone like Posey Parker, who recently toured Australia, she's someone who doesn't describe herself as a feminist. She's quite explicit about not being a feminist. And yet I, I guess the, the label of trans-exclusionary radical feminist is one that is applied to her. Is it possible that by using this sort of language, we're, we're sometimes legitimating these anti-gender movements? Yes. I, I mean, I think the, the label trans-exclusionary radical feminist 
is not a helpful one because it just seems to be applied to anyone who's anti-trans rights. And I think someone called Nigel Farage a turf, and it's like, Nigel Farage isn't a radical feminist. <laughs> like Nigel Farage would hate to be called a radical feminist. Can you imagine? So I think we need to be a, a lot. It's this, These are transphobic movements. These are people who are motivated by hate. These are people who want to deny human rights to a marginalised group, a marginalised part of the population. So I think also I think the term turf has been used in very violent ways. You know, we see it sort of flung at women again who who haven't even said anything about trans rights or it's it's become it's become such a, a contested term that it, and it no as I say no longer describes what trans opposition to trans rights is. So I think we need yeah, we need to call that opposition what it is. It's 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 a far right hate fueled movement designed to undermine human rights. And so that's not that's got nothing to do with radical feminism, which is the belief that there's a patriarchal system that oppresses women as a class. Why do you think it's important to recognise the political effects of the 2008 financial crisis on our contemporary situation, especially in terms of reproductive rights? In terms of 2008, I mean, I sort of see this as a kind of watershed moment in, I mean, again, I'm speaking from a UK context, where this huge thing happened, this huge financial crash that changed so much about our lives and left left a sort of gap. People, people were kind of coasting along and things were kind of okay. And then suddenly all the ideology, all the, the system that we were supposed to have faith in, the system that had been promised was never, was never going to change and was always going to make sure that everybody had a sort of the neoliberal kind of individualist system that we were living in suddenly collapsed and there was nothing left to take its place. And you ended up having a sort of, you. this was then followed by years of austerity that took away people's economic security. And what this left people with was a sense of anger and helplessness that the certainties that they thought were there were no longer there. And when you've got anger and helplessness and uncertainty, the far right swoops in and offers a new form of certainty. And that certainty is that anti-immigration, these people are taking your jobs. That woman who got promoted over you didn't deserve it. Like these kind of really anti-immigration, racist, sexist narratives that the far right love to propagate in order to gain support are able to flourish when there's no other political narrative that's offering you any hope or potential or the or empowerment. And so I think 2008 is really crucial to understanding the rise of the far right in the global north because it's a moment when everything changed and yet there wasn't a recognition that anything had changed. Sean, in terms of the uh, feminist and or leftist response to attacks upon reproductive rights, what do you think has been missing? So in terms of the feminist and left response to the attack, I think one of the biggest problems that we've had is not realising that it's under attack. So I think I, I felt for a long time that, particularly when I was writing the book, and I, I say in the book that I felt like a sad Cassandra, like I was like, Roe is going to go, it's going to happen. It's it's the writing is on the wall and people would be like, oh no, Sean, you're really hysterical. <laughs> like, it's fine. Like, they're not going to get rid of abortion. Like, that would be crazy. And lo and behold, that's what happened. In the UK, we've had some really good positive wins on abortion rights in the last couple of years. But what was really striking 
is that a recent win that we had was to allow women to take abortion pills in their own homes as opposed to having to take them on registered medical premises. And there was a consultation done by the government in order to garner public opinion on whether this was the right thing to do. When that consultation happened, almost half of the responses were from the anti-abortion groups in, in Britain or in England and Wales, I think it was. And the anti-abortion movement is a very small proportion of people in England and Wales. Abortion is generally supported in, in the country. We're, we're generally a pro-choice nation. Um, and what it went to show was that people just don't really realise that there is a potential threat to abortion rights, that abortion rights is something that we need to be consistently and confidently defending and advancing. I think a lot of people, and understandably, believe that, oh, that's settled, it's done. We've got We've got access to safe and legal abortion and therefore we don't need to think about it again. What the example of the US showed us is that you can never stop standing up for abortion rights and you should never stop furthering them. And in, in, in England and Wales particularly, we've got a very outdated law that could do with a huge amount of improvement, but there's not that sense of, there's a sense that it's settled and so we don't need to think about it. So I think we absolutely, one of the things I say in the book is that one of the reasons I wrote it is to make people realise that this is a fight we have to be having and it is a fight we have to be taking seriously. And we can't rest on our laurels. We can't take human rights for granted. The lesson of the last few years, be it on trans rights, be it on LGBT rights and be it on abortion rights, is that things can go backwards very fast and very downhill. So I think that's a really important thing to just encourage awareness encourage people to realise that we need to continue fighting and we need to continue standing up for our rights. Well, Sean, I think that's a really good spot to end it on. If people want to check out the book, it is Bodies Under Siege, How the Far-Right Attack on Reproductive Rights Went Global, and it is out through Verso on the 6th of June. And people can also check you out on Twitter at Sharnushka. That's S-I-A-N-U-S-H-A-K-A. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. Well, Andy, that is our show. We'll be back next week. But uh, a reminder, it is June. And here at 3CR, the month of June means one thing. It is Radiothon time and we need your bucks to keep the lights on. We sure do. Now, we have a target of $2,000. But, Andy, I know that there are people out there listening to this who, to that, that's just, that's the, the money that's slipped between the cushions of the couch. I know there must be at least one, Cam. Yeah. So, listeners in general, every little bit counts. So, anything that you can spare, please go to givenow.com.au, look up Yenar Passaran, and donate to our crowdraiser there. But if you happen to be an investment banker who has $4,000 burning a hole in your pocket, feel free to just remove all of the stress of Radiothon from our lives in one fell swoop. We will not be offended if. Your dirty, dirty money goes to givenow.com.au slash CR slash ENR pass around. So just putting that out there. People in general, we appreciate every little bit. Investment bankers with dirty, dirty money burning a sinful hole in your pocket. Why not just give us $4,000? Believe yourselves. Come on, guys. We will be back next week. Until then. Yes, we will. See you later. Bye.
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.